This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Patricia Kashian. To be imaginative about solutions to conservation, I think, would be to invoke these philosophical, romantic, personable relations that we have the capacity of of having with other organisms and be like shameless of, about them. To make the assertion that all life forms, regardless of how close they are to humans or how functional they are to us in our minds, they all are beings on this planet with us, right? We're, we've all been on this multi-billion year evolutionary journey to exist in this weird snapshot of time. And it is my belief that it is our like most sacred duty to allow these beings to live their lives and carry out their essential functions. Dr. Patricia Kashian is a mycologist and postdoctoral researcher at Purdue University, where she serves as a curator of the Arthur Fungarium and Crebell Herbarium. Dr. Kashian is a fungal taxonomist and received her PhD in mycology from SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York, in 2020. She enjoys stepping outside of more traditional science and has written on the topic of philosophy of science, feminist bioscience, ecofeminism, and queer theory. Well, Patty, thank you so much for taking some time to come on for the wild. I'm really excited to speak with you and just follow, um, follow the rabbit hole together. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And um, I've listened to a few episodes of this podcast that that have come out before, and I'm very honored to be amongst some of the most impressive people I know Mm. (laughs) on this planet right now. So I'm really, really honored. Thank you so much for saying that. And yeah, (laughs) I feel honored to be speaking with you and so many guests. It's totally changed my life. And um, yeah, just happy to be able to be in deep conversation with amazing people. Well, I um, want to mention that what initially drew me to your work were your articulations on mycology and queer theory. 
specifically an article you co-authored titled The Science Underground, Mycology as a Queer Discipline. And in this article, you share, quote, Mycology is queer at the organismal level. Fungi are non-binary. They are neither plants nor animals, but possess a mixture of qualities common to both groups, upending the prevailing binary concept of nature. It is rare for a fungus to have only two biological sexes, and some fungi, such as, oof, I'm not going to pronounce this one correctly, (laughs) Schizophilum commune, thank you, have as many as 23,000 mating types. When two compatible fungi meet, their mycelia will fuse into one body, sexually recombine, then remain somatically as one as they continue to live, grow, and explore in their environment, end quote. So to begin our conversation, I wonder if you could share the ways fungi challenges our binary notions and how you're using this recognition as a way to disrupt stagnant paradigms. Sure. So I think there are a lot of different ways to look at it. So I wanted in this article to explore both the very functional biological elements of, I would say, the queerness of fungi, but also sort of the more abstract methodological quandaries that mushrooms have put us in because of the very defiant nature of their biology. Um, So starting with some of the more biological elements, as mentioned in that quote you read, fungi rarely have two mating types, right? So we're really familiar with this dichotomy, the binary of male and female, and it is a dichotomy that is common, although we, I think, are often led to believe that the exception to that dichotomy is rare and anomalous, but fungi show us as a kingdom that contains millions of species that that binary is actually what is rare, (laughs) and I think it can help give humans permission to let go of that ourselves. So there are, it just, it does this kind of concept of binary sex and in mycology actually has very little footing. Also, I think there's, this is a little bit more subtle, but the ways in which fungi interact with other organisms also challenges our desire to put very discrete linear boxes around the definition of a species. And that has a lot of power, like rhetorical power in in queer theory, in which we, you know, attempt to, often queer theory is the project of of deconstructing boxes, right? It's not necessarily related to just sex or human relations, but it's the idea of that all relationships are, whether they're sexual or not, are constructed socially. And those social constructions may or may not serve us. And often they fail to fully encompass like the dizzying array of, of potential in our beings. And I think that fungi as organisms that form symbioses, relationships between species, they form these interspecies dynamics that scientifically challenge our conception of like the concept of, of an individual. And it actually, they are kind of challenging in that way because we start to realize that many things are 
deeply interdependent and that notion is is dis- disruptive to the sense of individualism which is a prevailing I notion that I think a lot of us in particularly those of us coming from a culture that's influenced by Western society, that's the idea of an individual is really important to us and really important in our constructions of heteronormativity and family structures. And so it's sort of this exercise in deconstructing that the notion of the individual, there are entire groups of fungi that we only know as being asexual, the phylum glomeromycota, for example, we only have evidence of it existing in asexual forms, despite being extremely diverse. There are fungi that have multiple reproductive structures of different types contained within one body. Um, We have all sorts of ways in which they're functionally, you know, challenging our idea of sex. But then again, as I said, that it's also that they create these really interesting dilemma for us as, as researchers and how we sort them and organize them and create categories for them, which is very much a, a queer idea. Mm. So it seems like you've seen the lens of queer theory actually enhance our scientific knowledge systems. Right. I, I don't know clearly don't think that that's always going on intentionally, but I absolutely think that applying some theoretical frameworks to looking at these questions that we have in science sometimes actually gets us to better science, which is something that that's my ultimate goal as, you know, first and foremost, I am a scientist, I'm a mycologist by training, but I'm very passionate about intellectual rigor, regardless of where it's coming from, regardless of what discipline it's most firmly rooted in. And I definitely believe that multiple ways of interacting with organisms or or with science or with questions related to organisms and science can be enhanced by taking a step back and being creative about how how to frame the question and how how to see yourself framing the question. Because I think ultimately, as human beings, we're, we're creatures of culture. We're, we're not apart from our culture, and scientists are no exception to that. So, of course, we strive for objectivity in science. Um, that's definitely the goal. But it is an elusive goal. So if you can accept that it's elusive, then you can start to talk about the ways in which you're affected by culture. And it's through that honesty and that transparency that you can start to, I think, make actual progress in answering certain types of questions and certainly in making science more grounded and equitable in ways that I think sometimes scientists like to forget, (laughs) maybe (laughs) intentionally or otherwise, that, you know, we are, you know, part of this culture as well, even when we investigate seemingly very obscure, small, non-human organisms. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, goodness, thank you for that. And hmm. yeah, another facet that you give attention to is the phenomenon of mycophobia yeah. and how both scientific relevance and popular understanding of mushrooms and fungi have been heavily shaped by a certain cultural aversion to the fungal queendom. Mm-hmm. And while this is something I've heard mentioned before, and I don't think many of us actually know the history or reasoning behind it, 
So I'd love if you could elaborate on what has historically led us or led so many Western European cultures, and then eventually that of the so-called United States, to develop such disrespect and devaluation of fungi? Yeah, so I, you know, a lot of this has to be speculative because it's some, um, these are forces and cultural artifacts that have taken root over the last several hundred, if not several thousand years. So it it has to be (laughs) for us speculative, but there are some lines of investigation and thought that I think are very compelling. And I do think that it is true that fungi some are poisonous, some are absolutely associated with death and decay, Um, but there are a lot of other things that are are associated with death and decay. Like every living thing dies. I mean, that's obvious on one hand, but on the other hand, I think it's like kind of funny that fungi are uniquely implicated in in death and their association with death is so noticeable to some people. Because fungi, like I said, some are poisonous, but there are also many, many poisonous plants. There are poisonous animals. There are plants that you should not touch because they're extremely poisonous to the touch. Whereas there's only one known fungus that's extremely rare and only occurs in Japan that is not, you're not able to touch. But if you live in the continental, you know, yeah, so-called <laughs> United States or North America, you will never encounter a mushroom that you cannot touch but that you know the fact that that's still the perception that most people instruct their children never to touch a mushroom you grow up you know even as I, I'm a now a professor and I'm teaching classes about nature including mycology and you know my students are always so nervous in the beginning to touch mushrooms and part of the experience that I get to shepherd them through is becoming more intimate with these organisms that are actually usually quite safe. And again, I don't, you know, I always tell them, you know, never eat something if you don't know what it is, but the same is true for plants. There's many poisonous plants that you should never eat, but we don't kind of map that quality onto plants the way we map that quality and flatten that kind of aspect of all mushrooms into one another, and which is another element of the, the queerness that I was talking about before, which is that there are these mushrooms are seen sort of as these perverse agents of disruption that are somehow fundamentally different and not suitable for a healthy life, right? And those are analogous features, I think, that we as members of the LGBTQT community experience. So there are those things. But I talk about a little bit in my paper and and, um, the connections between Western European culture and the earlier development of mycophobia and I, I find it compelling to, to relate the formation of capitalism to the formation of mycophobia because a capital logic is one that, as Anna Singh says, author and anthropologist, that it's stripping organisms from their life worlds and then commodifying them, right? So the act of capitalism is to, to remove an organism from, or a feature or structure from its, from its life and then to trade it as an exchange, as a commodity. And I, fungi are really um, difficult to strip from their life worlds, rarely can you like there are a few species that we can cultivate but out of the millions that are are thought to exist and of macrofungi there's hundreds of thousands of 
mushrooms that make fruiting bodies and only a handful we know how to actually cultivate like the agaricus bisporus which is the portobello you know oyster mushrooms um, and a few others so i think it's very compelling that there is that relationship between this organism that cannot be controlled or dominated by the same mechanisms and logics that fueled control and domination of most other organisms and including human beings around the world um, with the emergence of capitalism out of Western Europe. And then also there's this relationship between fungi and agriculture, which is also sort of, I think, compelling in which fungi were more likely to become disruptive pathogens in the context of monoculturing, which was also a fundamental technique of, of capitalism, which is to, again, kind of isolate organisms, strip them from their natural ecologies and maximize their output uh, forcibly. And in that context, in growing, for example, wheat in a monoculture, you create this absolute, like, heaven for fungi, fungal pathogens that are specialized to grow on those particular grains. And in that moment, fungi kind of mark themselves as being the antithesis of the forward progressive symbol that agriculture kind of came to bear. Um, and that's an, also an idea that is somewhat explored by Anna Singh, the, the anthropologist I've mentioned, so, who I cite fairly frequently in my text. So I think there's a few things going on there, but I do think that fundamentally they were organisms that became uh, relegated to this realm of the, the uncontrollable, which then also connected to associations with the underworld and devils and demons and witches, and were therefore sort of seen as oppositional to quote unquote, like healthy conceptions of like the family unit and procreation and, and sort of advancement of a capitalistic uh, society. Mm. But again, it is fairly speculative, but when you start to pick up those strands in the modern context, I think they're, they're still pretty evident. People really fear what they can't control instead of wonderment. I think I've encounter often that people feel fear, um, which is not that, that there's cultural context to that as well. Mm -hmm. oh, your analysis is so deep and um, <laughs> intricate. I really appreciate it and can definitely follow the threads that you're pulling on. And oh, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, tracing other threads, say, around how capital S science is shaped, I'm thinking about how within the mycological community, academic science is often pitted against community science. And I know this is something you've articulated before, as well as your frustrations around the binary approach to academy versus community. And in previous conversations with guests, we've definitely explored some of the problems with mainstream science. But yes, yeah, I wonder, um, yeah, if you could add nuance to our understanding around this, as well as perhaps share some of your own experiences with the shortcomings of navigating these spaces and being able to differentiate between scientific thought, pseudoscience, alternative ways of knowing, and the sort of standard hierarchical approach to knowledge that is just so rampant. 
Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot to discuss here. I think there's a lot of different angles that are really are really important. So starting with like maybe the most obvious one, which is that academia has a history of being extremely exclusive, particularly on the basis of race, gender, and class. I think that it's, you know, that legacy is embedded in the knowledge that we have printed in texts, right? Who gets to ask the questions around scientific investigation or, and of course, also in the social sciences as well, this is equally problematic, where you have people coming from particular lenses, cultural lenses, who are unreflexively asking questions about the world around them and then filtering both the question initially, but then, you know, the outcome of their investigation and the create the particular construct of their investigation is all being filtered through that cultural lens. And when that cultural lens is very homogenous, particularly how it was in the early days of institutional science, you get very homogenous understandings of the world. And of course, sometimes we have there are people who discovered really fascinating, important things throughout the history of science. Like that's obviously completely true, but also there's artifacts all around us that are just incorrect and, but yet really embedded deeply in our understanding of organisms and, or, I mean, of all things, but I can talk most easily about organisms because I'm an organismal biologist. But for example, just one example of this is, that Linnaeus, who is was a Swedish botanist and is kind of called the quote-unquote father of taxonomy, he created the binomial nomenclature system in which we assign the genus and species names to individuals to sort them. And he did, in fact, do tremendous work around organizing the tree of life. But his treatment of fungi in particular was was very bad in terms of its like it was not good science, right? It, he, for example, called fungi lower plants, which basically was indicating that they were these less evolved creatures that were not as important and not as like complete. And it kind of, it implies that they didn't make the journey the, as far as plants did. And, you know, the, obviously we have the benefit of now fully understanding evolution and all sorts of other tools now that we can sort these things. But he still, he used phrases that were just purely unscientific, like calling lichens, which are a fungal association symbiosis with algae, calling them like the peasants of the plants and things like that, which are obviously very loaded, even you can say classist, just like, oh, this dysfunctional, like plant wannabe plant, basically, which is like so clearly personally, like, That's not an objective assessment, but yet I think people who are women and people who are non-binary and who are not white are often constantly having to assure people who do not have those identities that they are objective and that they are worthy of being in this space. But meanwhile, there are scientists in deeply embedded in our academy who like have obviously, who just could say things (laughs) without as much scrutiny. I don't know. It's just, it's just sort of funny to me that this idea that science is objective when it's carried out by human beings. Um, And then of course, there are much more nefarious examples of this, like the entire concept of eugenics, which is 
deeply, gravely serious and often employed scientific logics in its defense. And there's, it's really, I think, important that anyone who practices science, particularly if you have an institutional affiliation, that you are able to like name the ways in which science has been used for evil. Um, science is, it, it is a tool, right? It's, I, I like to define science as an equal opportunity investigative methodological tool which is to say that everyone in theory can do science. Science is not the domain of institutions or of anyone with a particular identity, you know, regardless of class, race, religion, gender, and um, ability, age. Being able to conduct science is irrespective of all of that. But I, I think that we need to grapple with the fact that it has sometimes been used at the service of very dark workings, very, very formidable, scary things. Also in getting into this, I always want to be extremely careful because we do unfortunately live in a day and age where science is being met with really bad faith arguments, people attempting to you know, discredit scientists by making baseless claims that we're all working for the, the government in this, you know, deep state kind of way or taking corporate money or all this stuff. It's like so not true most of the time. Most scientists do not have connections to any deep state or big corporate power or entity. Um, so I, I never want my arguments to be used to further that. However, I think it's really res the responsible thing as scientists to to routinely and as part of a daily practice, reflect on your potential power as someone who's seen as an authority, whether or not that authority is true to you. It is very much, scientists are authority figures in, in our culture. And as such, it, it's deeply our responsibility to be able to talk about the limits of science, the, the potential pitfalls of science, and make sure that everyone feels that regardless of their technical profession, that they are invited into the conversation of, of global discovery, which is what science is. Hmm. But then also, I guess I'm an extremely passionate advocate of community science or citizen science, as it's known as both. And I think that that's tremendous and exciting. And I'm a big fan of that. Um, I do want to say that, you know, nothing should be put on a pedestal, I guess. Is, is that something I'm constantly kind of arriving at in different parts, areas of my life. But citizen science has some of its own pitfalls, right? Sometimes the people who can gain the most traction as citizen science are people who have identities that are um, not as marginalized. For example, it's like some of the um, really amazing citizen scientists who've contributed to, to organismal biology and mycology over the course of the last hundred years are people who are independently wealthy for example, even Darwin was independently wealthy and was able to, you know, travel the world with family money. So I don't want to say that community science is just absent all social hierarchy and structure and flaws and, and everything. It, it's, it's full of that as well. I think that sometimes there's this um, unrealistic kind of glorification of, of citizen science that it does bear mentioning, but ideally, right, in both spaces, ongoing conversations should happen in which, you know, power is reflected upon. Um, you ask questions about yourself and, and the way you move through the world as you conduct your, your research. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I'm also thinking along this line about the frustrations that are so often felt around a scientific approach to the wild in terms of being devoid of emotion, reverence, attachment, and even urgency. And in the article previously mentioned, The Science Underground, you share, quote, mycologists use sensing, intuition, experience, and storytelling with experts operating outside of institutional affiliation more often than with other organismal fields. For many mycologists, our relationship with fungi stir powerful emotions tied deeply to our core. We sometimes cry or burst into song when we find these special and beautiful beings, end quote. Oh, I definitely (laughs) have burst into tears or song or just elation, (laughs) but You know, I'd like to dive further into the myth of pure objectivity with you and how it's actually being resisted by folks like you or in the field of mycology at large. Yeah, so I really love the articulation of this idea by Robin Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass. I had the distinct privilege of going to SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, where she was a professor. And she also served on my committee for my PhD, which was an honor and a pleasure. <laughs> but in reading, I recently, for my the current class I'm teaching, I assigned the book to my students and had the also the pleasure of, of discussing the book with, with students reading it for the first time. And she talks a lot about how her interest in botany was kind of stimulated in in large part by this fascination with beauty and beauty being um, particularly in the ways in which asters, the flower and goldenrod looked next to each other. The asters being this brilliant purple and the goldenrod being this beautiful golden color and the ways in which they often grow near each other and they looked so stunningly beautiful. And she was interested in investigating why does that look so beautiful? And when she approached her professor about that question as an undergraduate student, he rebuffed that saying, that's not a scientific question. Like if you're interested in beauty, go study art. And she goes on to talk about how there is actually a very fascinating scientific explanation as to why they grow next to each other and look so beautiful. And and it has to do with the fact that when those two colors, gold and purple, grow next to one another, each become more visible because of the ways in which in color theory, they're like opposite. And I'm not very good at explaining the color theory but it makes them more visible to insects, which then increases their pollination and um, increases their fitness. Um, So there's this, it's, I just find that story like extremely compelling because it it resonates deeply with, with my own kind of interest in becoming a scientist, which was absolutely driven by a romanticism, not necessarily beauty, actually kind of, in fact, the opposite for me, it was a deep level of kinship that I felt with organisms that were kind of considered to be 
on the margins of what was acceptable. So that includes fungi, but, but actually like some of my earliest loves were reptiles and amphibians. So particularly snakes and frogs and snapping turtles and organisms that were that dwell in the, the swamps and swamps in general as being this sort of site for me is this like non-prescriptive freedom as a child and particularly as a child that was experiencing very acute gender dysphoria and a sense of like lack of belonging so that was I guess like this space for me to feel both like liberated and unseen in this way where I did not want to be seen but I could be seen by these other organisms I could you know I I felt safe in their company in the way that I did not feel in the presence of like society and that relationship has 100% continued through my trajectory of becoming a professional scientist. Um, Although I didn't necessarily know at the time, like I did not know as a child that I wanted to be a field biologist or mycologist. I didn't even really know what that path looked like, but it kept revealing itself to me over the course of my education and what is fundamentally part of why I'm a scientist. And I, I can't imagine that I would ever have been a scientist without for that very personal, very subjective and sort of sad, even you could say on some levels, object like pretty sad, but also like beautiful, you know, like many things, right? It was many things, but it, the least of which was objectivity. <laughs> and I just think that once it gets you there to pretend it therefore has no more like space or footing in the realm of science is just sort of I think that's that doesn't make any sense to me. I think whatever is like motivating you should have space. And of course, like it's not going to peep up in every single like, you know, I've written a number of scientific papers that are as objective as I could possibly measure. Right. But like to to say that as a scientist, it's not part of my practice to be like in love with the species that I study that that would would be false and then of course it absolutely motivated this work of the theory paper that we keep I call it like the theory paper but but it's a theoretical paper uh, interdisciplinary paper that scientists and humanities people and lay people to discuss the role of science in our lives and the role of our, our relationship to fungi in, in, in a capitalist society, all of these things. So I think for me, the writing this piece came out of the acute awareness that scientists need to remain in touch with what we consider to be these subjective elements of our work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. And thank you. Yeah. I think Many of us are challenged by the recognition that something like science doesn't have to be purely oppressive or hierarchical endeavor. However, it seems that there are a few examples to indicate otherwise. And you had mentioned wanting to discuss the ethical and moral obligations of scientists. And what I immediately think of is how scientific integrity has really withered under a capitalist system in terms of funding and lobbying, etc. But yeah, I wonder if you could speak to how you'd frame these ethical and moral obligations for scientists, both in terms of challenging paradigms and remodeling the system itself. 
as well as the shifting obligations we have to the earth as the climate changes and habitats are continually degraded. Yeah, I think the last part like of what you're saying is is kind of the crux um, of, I think, the urgency of my argument. Capitalism has harmed science in that, as you mentioned, it it's, um, attaches incentives to um, inquiry or, or institutions that, you know, conduct science. These incentives can draw people away from integrity. So I guess what's interesting, though, is I still want to, like, remain, when that happens, then it's not science. I think that's one thing that's, I mean, it's called science. And so, so, so like, I, t- I try to distinguish between, like, institutional capital S science in the article and then, like, the science as a tool. Science is, like, that universal tool, as I described earlier. Because institutional capital S science, science as a, as a body, is flawed deeply and innumerably. <laughs> um, and I think most harmfully when it's attached to capitalistic incentives. But it's important to, to mention though that like when you are conducting a project that lacks integrity, you are no longer conducting science. You are conducting a project that lacks integrity, that gives you a particular answer based on a particular desired outcome that you know might be tied to your funding. So that's that's a moral issue that is very serious, um, and I care a lot about. But it's I think it's all kind of useful to separate that from science itself. I mean, maybe that is just the semantics, but I actually kind of think it's more than that because I think it's helpful to definitionally understand that it becomes you know, pseudoscience becomes something that's claiming to be science, but is actually knowingly and intentionally manipulative, um, which is what I I consider pseudoscience. And I think it's also useful to separate pseudoscience from different or alternative ways of knowing. For example, traditional ecological knowledge, as it's commonly called, is like knowledge that predates colonialism um, held by groups all around the world. This can include uh, people native to Europe, um, but is particularly talked about in the cultures that were um, forcibly erased or attempts to erase them have been made. And it's the knowledge that they possess that may or may not be always scientific, although many cultures around the world have conducted science in terms of like asking a question, gathering data, interpreting that data, and then sharing that data. Um, That's, you know, that's what science is. But traditional ecological knowledge sometimes departs from a very like replicable structure, right? If you can't repeat it because it's so culturally embedded, does that mean it's not true? No, it, it it's true, <laughs> but it might not be science and that's okay. Not everything that you believe in that is true in your context has to be scientific. So I think it's really important to differentiate. Like it's okay if you believe in things that are not scientific and you're, you believe in science, like those things can coexist. You can have beliefs in spiritual realms. You can believe in tarot readings and uh, you can believe there's life after death and you can believe all of those things and be a scientist. So there's pseudo pseudoscience is this attempt to mask an investigation that is not with integrity, often in the pursuit of money uh, or to the pursuit of 
duping someone, but it, you know, sometimes takes on the hallmarks of science. Like, oh, they had, they said they did this formal study in a lab and whatever, but then they just messed around with the data on their computer afterwards and fudged the numbers. So I think those, those are all, those are three different things, right? We have science, which is done with an attempt at objectivity that can be then successfully communicated to other people. And they could, you know, replicate that, that investigative pursuit. And then you have traditional ways of knowing or alternative ways of knowing in which there's no claim of conducting science. And it's a claim that has other nuanced roots and meaning and, and value. Um, and then you have pseudoscience. So I'd like to make sure everyone like in, in conversation that those things are not used inter interchangeably. And then it's kind of circling back to what you were saying about climate. I, I think this is a particularly good space for people's emotion, scientific emotion, or the emotions of scientists, I should say, to enter the conversation in the renouncement of capitalism, the renouncement of the destruction of the earth, because it's just wrong and damaging and bad. And it's okay as scientists to have the, an opinion that is in defense of a value system that is not super clear or clean or objective. Like I think scientists themselves, we need to reject that you can only hold opinions that are like extremely cautious and extremely like always just following the data because I think that's how we end up destroying the earth and doing so without protest. And that extends to conservation of fungi. So I think it's really interesting and this really I think is the material outcome of a lot of what otherwise can be somewhat abstract, you know, the conversations I'm having in that paper. It's like, the material outcome of fungi being completely understudied, unfunded, feared, reviled, and et cetera, is that we actually have very little information about them. And therefore, we're not in a good place to conserve them because we haven't built this like case based on quantified data about how they're being affected by climate change. But I, my point that I try to make is that we don't have time. Um, I think mycologists, if, give, if we had all the time in the world, we would come up with really great, really smart, interesting systems of monitoring fungi and advocate, you know, like understanding how they're being affected. But we just absolutely do not have that kind of time. So I think in, in the case of conservation, um, it's okay to make emotional arguments around why this land should not be destroyed. Like, I, I think it's sort of embarrassing <laughs> even and kind of pathetic to be like, um, you know, toiling around within your lab being like, well, like maybe in 20 years, I can demonstrate that this one species of fungus is objectively being harmed by degradation of habitat. Again, like I, I admire the, the attempt to get that information, but simultaneously, it, I'm of the opinion that it's perfectly okay for us as scientists to say like, no more development and no more destruction of old growth forests. We need, like, we should just conserve as much land as possible. We need to stop burning fossil fuel. You know, I mean, obviously some of those things are attached to scientific data, but not specifically in all cases. Um, but I yet, I think that that is still deeply important. And I, I'm, I'm, yeah, fairly unapologetic about that at this point. <laughs> Daily bread, my soul, my hero heart. And on that winding road, 
Now, I'd like to orient our conversation back to the role of fungi, but as someone based in the Pacific Northwest, I, I can't help but think about range expansion and how fungi will roam across the country due to changing rainfall patterns and warming temperatures and an increase in wildfires, and whether or not this will mean a significant decrease in once mushroom abundant areas. And knowing that 90% of all terrestrial plant species form connections with fungi in the soil, what do changing climates mean for fungi and their surrounding ecosystems? How will fungi migrate? Yeah, it's really definitely disconcerting because we don't really know. You know, in some ways, fungi are extremely adaptable and resilient but in other ways, they're very particular and, and different species um, have different levels of specificity for their habitat and their needs. Some fungi are very generalist, um, like the oyster mushroom is sort of like the infamous fungal generalist. It like can grow, it can digest fossil fuels or it can grow on a dead elm tree. You know, it can, it can do a lot and it's versatile and, and dynamic. But other species are very, very specific to their needs. They depend on a number of other different species in their habitat to be existing in a particular way. And we believe that maybe those species will not tolerate dramatic changes to their landscape and habitat. So it does very much depend on the species. But overall, there's a lot of concern because Again, as I was saying before, we really don't know. Even like we have very like relatively little knowledge of the ecological reality of most fungi. Even mushrooms and species of fungi that we know well, we still most of them are shrouded in some sort of mystery. Like exactly what are the factors that govern govern their fruiting body production, and we still sort of are trying to eliminate those intricacies. So when you add on top of that a shifting climate, both in terms of warmth, in terms of drought, in terms of more rain in certain places, or just different seasonal patterns, we it just makes the picture even more complicated. There are some fungi that seem to have started to roam the world. Um, Amanita phylloides is one species of mushroom. It's actually one of like the most deadly to consume, but it's it's traveled. It's considered sort of like a non-native species throughout a lot of the United States, and the patterns of that are being investigated but are not fully understood. Whereas other species seem to be, like like I said, very site-specific and very rarely encountered. But we don't necessarily know that they aren't in the soil just because if, for example, if it's a fungus that forms a large fruiting body, it lives for most of its life in a mycelial state, which is like the fibrous network of um, cells that lives in the substrate. And it's where it's not really analogous to the root of a plant. It's more complicated than that. It's like where sex occurs. It's that's where um, extracellular digestion occurs and it can travel and seek out more nutrients. Um, and the fungus might not grow in the same spot um, every year. So when a fr fruiting body is not apparent, we, it is probably living in the substrate just below the surface and you just can't see it. But what governs the production of fruiting bodies and which then leads to spore production and dispersal 
that's like important. So at least sometimes, you know, if it's in soil or in the substrate, it, it might still be there, but the conditions that would make it fruit matter. So it's this weird kind of thing where we know it, it's probably always there, but like if it can only produce fruit every 10 years instead of every year, that likely would have a negative impact on its population but we just don't really know these things. So it's just a little complicated to assess, but I, I, unfortunately I will say that the, the prognosis is, is not great. Um, we definitely like, just because fungi are rarely listed as like endangered or threatened, that's just a outcome of not having a lot of data, but not, we don't believe that they're somehow sort of magically escaping the terrors of you know, habitat destruction. So, I mean, there definitely are going to be a, a fungi that can shift and adapt and move and migrate north or migrate, you know, in higher in altitude or move west or east, but we just have so little data. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for, for responding in the ways that you can about that and we began our conversation discussing the sort of historic repulsion to fungi, but comparatively, social media has really bolstered the popularity of mushrooms, particularly in terms of harvesting, you know, often overshadowing conversations on land stewardship for fungal diversity, which is incredibly important in context to the importance of fungi in our ecosystems. The role of fungi in ecosystem recovery and you know, just thinking about urban habitats that are significantly lacking mycorrhizal fungi. So, yeah, I wonder if you could speak to whichever tendril here sticks out for you in terms of the reality that capitalism prevents us from developing in ethics of care at the ecosystem level when it comes to fungi. Yeah, okay. This, I'm really glad you're asking me about this. So it's funny, like, I've been studying fungi for over 10 years. So certainly when I began, uh, they were, no one studied, like, you know, there were the there are mycologists and then there were people, then there was everyone else. <laughs> um, and there was very, there was, I was met with a lot of confusion and hesitancy when I was telling people I wanted to study mycology. And it was very much a marginalized, <laughs> like interest in many ways. And, and I would say that probably starting about two years ago, little I would say a little bit before the pandemic, but then seemingly accelerated perhaps by the pandemic, there has been a boom in the popularity of fungi and mushrooms and particularly mushrooms that are edible and mushrooms that are beautiful. And unfortunately, I do see a, a widening chasm between people who engage with mushrooms and people who carry with them an ethics of care, um, which is sort of like <laughs> my nightmare because it, it taps directly into some of these ideas I was talking about in the paper, which, you know, when I started writing this paper, it was before this change in, in kind of social relationship with mushrooms. And then it came out just as it was starting to shift so I maybe would have spent more time discussing this in the paper if I had kind of anticipated this change in, in perspective. But it, it, it is a form of extractive um, commodification that I'm seeing a lot of. So like I will engage with the land insofar as I can put something like in my mouth and then put it on social media as well, um, which is deeply linked to consumerism in a capitalist culture. 
And it scares me because we have so little information about these organisms and what they really need to thrive. So like with plants, for example, we can say like, do not harvest this. This is threatened or endangered. And for the most part, people will respect that. But if I go on online, which I've made the mistake of doing a few times and trying to convince people like to harvest less, they get very reactive. I've had people try to explain to me like fungal biology, um, which is challenging because I don't have the concrete scientific evidence that that fungus is endangered but I know that habitats are endangered and habitats are threatened. And I also know that as a mycologist, we just don't quite know the impact of large scale foraging. We just don't have that data. So in that context, I think it's best to be like very respectful and, and have as little of an impact as possible. I do think foraging in general is like a great thing. And I have, have derived tremendous joy from foraging and I am not trying to gatekeep, but I don't think that asking for like um, hesitancy or care and and at just an ethics of care, as you said, I think that that should be, you know, a prerequisite <laughs> for, for the, these types of interactions. But I, I mean, I also am not in the position of enforcing that. Um, and I don't think anyone should be, it should be something that kind of comes from within. So I try to have these conversations with people, but it just, it, it, it's very much embedded in a lot of these other logics of sort of commodification, like proximity to something that you don't actually have responsibility for, or you don't think you have responsibility for, um, is something that extending that courtesy to non-human life forms, I think is really essential. Like you have to consciously separate yourself from the same logics that are responsible for the uh, cannibalization of the earth. And you can do these things in particular ways. I mean, that's my belief system, right? I think that, I, I, I guess what I'm saying, I'm kind of stammering here because it's actually a new, this is a new thing for me. It's a new thing for me to be a mycologist in an age of mushrooms being very exciting. So I'm, I'm still kind of formulating my thoughts around it. And actually I deeply fear coming off as being elitist. <laughs> so I, I apologize for being a little bit, not you know super direct or clear about this. Um, so I'm grateful for the space just actually to try to explore these thoughts. <laughs> Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy that you're just able to stream of consciousness a little bit with us. Yeah, it's it's good. And I I have a question about the International Congress of Armenian Mycologists, which you're a founding member of. And if you could speak to the intersections you're seeking to explore amongst mycological science and Armenian liberation. And Ooh, yeah. really the importance of coalescing our understanding of ecological and social welfare. Great. Thank you so much for bringing that up. This is something that's really important to me. So I am Armenian. I'm also part Irish, but Kaishan, my last name is Armenian. And there are very few Armenians in the world, tragically, in large part because of the Armenian genocide, uh, which was perpetrated by the Ottoman Empire and uh, Turkey is kind of now the modern continuation of that of that um, political structure. And it's a genocide that's gone very underrecognized and de explicitly denied, and particularly by the state of Turkey and its allies. Um, so it's very much, even though it's a genocide that happened about 100 years ago, it is something that Armenians have long sought closure over because the land loss, colonization of 
particularly of Western Armenia, and then the ongoing denial of the genocide in which the U.S. was for a very long time complicit in. So only a few hundred thousand Armenians survived the genocide. Um, and actually now most Armenians, there are more Armenians living in diaspora uh, around the world than there are actually living in the country of Armenia. So my Armenian identity for those reasons is very dear to me because you know of, the, of that history. So there was unfortunately a um, flare up of ethnic cleansing in and around Armenia um, carried out by Azerbaijan, Armenia's neighboring state, which is allied to Turkey um, and is a country, a very fascist country that stokes a lot of ethnic hatred towards Armenians very actively. Um, and there was a war that broke out over a piece of disputed land in what was indigenously Armenian for thousands of years and is the majority of the population there is Armenian. But Armenia was also um, briefly uh, colonized by the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, it created state borders that did not reflect the, the indigenous populations. Um, and there is this piece of land called Artsakh, which was also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a area that's now colonized by Azerbaijan and that there has been struggles over that land for the last few decades. Um, and most recently in uh, 2020, Azerbaijan launched a very vicious war to um, reclaim that land despite it being majority ethnically Armenian. Um, so that war was really brutal. Thousands of young Armenian men died in battle. Hundreds were captured as prisoners of war. Um, and there were sporadic acts of violence all around the world um, targeted at Armenian civi uh, civilians, like in, in the US and in different places uh, in Europe. So it was actually a very upsetting uh, period of time, particularly it was in September and October of 2020. And that time, um, it was, I guess, traumatizing for us because there, of the genocidal trauma that all of us harbor like in our bodies um, from gen intergenerational trauma it's resurfaced I mean something that was only skin deep anyway but like it was it was very upsetting to a lot of Armenians because it was this existential threat to our our homeland which Azerbaijan seeks to fully eradicate they have they have stated states people have stated that they like seek to completely destroy the entire country of Armenia so it's very um, scary and sad for us. And we're also like, because there's so few Armenians, we're just generally sort of, a, you know, a not very well understood people in, in particularly in the US or outside of um, the Middle East. So, I mean, amazingly, I have several friends who are mycologists and who are of Armenian descent. And we started talking because we wanted to like leverage our capacity as scientists and to, assist our brothers and sisters in Armenia but you know obviously like we can't join the war effort as scientists but we can try to like do like long-term capacity building to help generate scientific inquiry in Armenia and bolster their resource scientific resources that they have and we want to do so in a way that's very explicit about the relationship between biodiversity and conservation to indigenous sovereignty and like the, a thriving um, human community. That's sort of, we wanted to be 
explicitly political in this pursuit. Um, we want to explicitly link, like there's a lot of evidence that empirically has been gathered that shows that indigenous peoples are the best caregivers and stewards of their own land and that biodiversity declines with colonialism. Um, and so to that end, we want to leverage biodiversity reverence and link that to Armenian sovereignty. For example, Azerbaijan um, used white phosphorus to just decimate the forests around Artsakh, which is, um, Armenians are also like a people that are very connected to the land and to biodiversity. Um, and we have a saying called, we are our mountains. Um, and so there's a very deep ethic of, of land care embedded in Armenian culture. And it was just so obvious that the nation state of Azerbaijan, that's only like, you know, a few decades old, is claiming this piece of land that's been in, you know, indigenously Armenian for thousands of years. And to prove that it's theirs, they're going, they're willing to decimate the forest with white phosphorus. And, and to me and to a lot of my colleagues and friends and fellow Armenians, it's just like, so that's not clearly you do not love this land like you're willing to let it burn um, as opposed to letting us live here peacefully so there is no choice to be apolitical in this in this space um, that choice is one that's been taken away from us but we can as scientists you know help develop capacity there by collaborating with our really amazing colleagues who are excellent scientists but do not have the benefit of being well funded um, and and um, have the the disadvantage of living in a country that's constantly just trying to protect itself to exist and doesn't have the ability to, you know, uh, divert a lot of money to, to infrastructure for science. So it's something I care very deeply about. And I'm also extremely grateful to have this platform to just talk about it a little bit, uh, because it is a very um, central piece of my scientific career at this time. So thank you. Thank you for asking. And, and to the listeners, I'm, I'm very grateful for you to listen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. It's really, hmm. it feels just important to learn about that doesn't get nearly as much um, attention as it should. So thank you so much for diving into that a little bit with us. And thank you. Yeah. Now, as we come to a close of this really beautiful conversation, I'd like to ask you about your work as a taxonomist as it relates to conservation practices. The Science Underground article shares how very few species of fungi have been placed on the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List, with around 40 fungi species being listed in comparison to over 25,000 plants and 68,000 animals. However, you clarify that this isn't because fungi are not susceptible to extinction. Rather, it shared, quote, holding fungi to biological determinations of more normative groups, say trees or birds, is to deny their basic biology, which puts them at risk for extinction. The solution is not to find out how to force fungi into the normative box, end quote. Which, I'd like to just sit with this for a moment and have us think about how when we deny things as they are and confine them within very limited categories of understandings, we are assisting an extinction. So with this failure in mind, I wonder if you could speak to what sort of imaginative conservation practices are needed at this particular moment. 
Thank you for asking that. And I think the way you phrased it just there was really brilliant, like being flexible in the way we encounter these creatures and organisms we are assisting in, in their extinction. Yeah. Wow. I'm really impressed with that. Um, I'm definitely going to think about that after this interview. Yeah. I, I think I, I, what I really wanted to close my, that essay with was that this material reality, right. That we, there are, there are material outcomes to the ways in which we practice science. And yes, many, most species by far, most species of fungi have not been named. And for me, taxonomy, which is the naming and describing of species and the sorting them in the tree of life, to me, that's always been somewhat of a philosophical and romantic pursuit, which is to give, to call something by its name, to call someone by its name. And to name, to give names to organisms for me is, it's not a possessive act. It's not putting a stamp on something. It's putting it into the discourse, right? It's giving, it's giving space for the organism to be a being and a being that you can refer to by name is as a sign of respect, which that's, that's always been why I've wanted to be a taxonomist specifically was to, I mean, sure. I, I'm, I love being outside and looking for new organisms in these biodiverse and gorgeous places around the world, which is something I have the privilege of doing. But the naming part was an, is for me a way, an act of, of respect and when you name something, when you know it's something by name, someone by name, you are far less likely to, to be okay with committing harm against that being if that being has a face or has a name that, you can, that you've said with your lips. And I think that that act is, yes, there's a, a lot of science that goes into taxonomy, but I think that part is equally important. And it's hard to advocate for the nameless organisms that perish possibly every day. We, you know, the rate of extinction is extremely high. I will say that it's, that, that's always true in evolutionary time. Like extinctions are ongoing and constant, um, but it's, uh, we, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's been greatly accelerated by destructive human behaviors, particularly in the framework of capitalism. So I think to be imaginative about solutions to conservation, I think would be to invoke these philosophical, romantic, personable relations that we have the capacity of, of having with other organisms and be like shameless about them. To, to make the assertion that all life forms, regardless of how close they are to humans or how functional they are to us in our minds, like they all are beings on this planet with us, right? We're, we've all been on this multi-billion year evolutionary journey to exist in this weird snapshot of time. And it is my belief that it is our like most sacred duty to to allow these beings to live live their lives and carry out their essential functions. I mean, that that to me is what I what I believe deeply. And I, I would like that to be invoked in conservation metrics that we have a, a sacred <laughs> connection as beings, um, just as we would want to have our ecological rights as humans maintained, right? Our right to 
forage and our right to reproduce, our right to um, love and, and kind of cohabitate as we please and just carry out like the functions that have been embedded deeply in our DNA. I think that those things, those rights should be extended to non-human organisms as well. I'm so there with you. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. And thank you for speaking so lovingly and passionate about our more than human kin. It's inspiring and I think helps reorient us to how to be in right relationship. So, oh, wow, Patty, thank you so much for this conversation. I've truly enjoyed all the rabbit holes we've um, crawled through together. So it's been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ayana. Yeah, it's been really, really nice um, to talk with you. I really appreciate your approach to this subject. Um, it felt very considerate and I'm really grateful f- to be able to like kind of explore these ideas in a somewhat freeform way and, and have that be um, something that you're engaging with. So thank you. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by the music teller, Madeline Alana and Kendra Swanson. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, Francesca Glassbell, Julia Jackson, and Priya Superwall.